0: So just out of curiosity, how many people here have ever heard a sermon or a Sunday school lesson from the book of Jude? Wow. Okay, a few of y'all. That's excellent. Um, When I was a third-year student in seminary taking pastoral and general epistles, uh, we were required to keep a translation notebook of two of the pastoral and general epistles. Um, I chose Jude because it was very brief. Uh, thought I would be making uh, lighter work for myself, but also because I had grown up in the church my entire life from infancy. and had never heard a sermon or a Sunday school lesson from the book of Jude, and I just felt like I wanted to spend a little bit more time um, there. Um, I ended up pouring way more time into that project than was required by my professor in seminary. Um, and that was just because the, the deeper I dug as I was working on my annotated translation, the more fascinating things I found about Jude. Um, and I also just became convinced that this is an epistle for all ages, but especially for ours in particular. Um, so we're going to spend some time digging into that. Um, one of the things that you will learn about me, I, I like to teach, but... I think that my job as a pastor is more than just to tell you what Scripture says. I think that my job is to equip you to go to Scripture yourself to understand what Scripture says. So as I'm teaching through Jude, one of the things that I'm going to be doing periodically is just an aside to talk about how do we read Scripture? How do we make meaning of Scripture ourselves? Because I want you to be able to go home and do this yourself. So having said that, I am really indebted to... uh, A couple of uh, professors from my undergrad, Um, so uh, Scott Duvall and Danny Hayes, put together this book, Grasping God's Word, and it was intended for freshmen at our university, Ouachita Baptist University in Arkansas. Every single student, as part of this liberal arts school, was required to take two uh, Christian studies courses, and one of them was on reading the Bible. And so this book was designed as a manual uh, for 18 or 19-year-old kids to learn how to go to Scripture and make meaning of it. And uh, it's something that I've used my entire, my entire life since. So I wanted to share it with you. It's part of my method that I use. So you see here we've got a little diagram. Uh, over on the left side, we've got what looks kind of like a biblical village. And on the right side, we've got what looks like a modern American town. And in between we've got this river with a bridge. So, uh, according to their textbook, there are five steps in the process of reading and understanding God's word. So, the very first step is to understand what did the text mean to the biblical audience. Uh, they call this grasping the text in their town. So, the first part of step 1 is to read the text carefully to make observations. Try to see as much as possible inside of the text. Slow down. Work your way through the text with a fine tooth comb. Make observations, as many observations as you can. Identify who was the author, who was the intended audience. Study the historical and literary context. Understand the genre, right, that's being used. Is it poetry? Is it narrative? Is it epistolary, right? We communicate in different forms, right? So it's important to understand the genre to understand what's being communicated. Uh, We need to scrutinize the grammar, analyze significant words, look for repetitions. And after completing all of this study, then we synthesize the meaning of what this passage meant for the biblical audience. We try to put that in a sentence or two. So we're going to write that out. What did this mean for the biblical audience? We're going to use past tense verbs and refer to the biblical audience. We need to be specific rather than general um, so that we can slowly develop a theological principle, right, for what this text is actually saying. So I've got a little video for you. I'm not sure if we can see it with the lights here, um, but it's a it's a whodunit. And I think it's really, really um, a lot of fun but also helpful for us as we consider how we come to the biblical text. So I'm going to share this with you. Clearly, somebody in this room murdered Lord Smythe, who, at precisely 3.34 this afternoon, was brutally bludgeoned to death with a blunt instrument. I want each of you to tell me your whereabouts at precisely the time that this dastardly deed took place. I was polishing the brass in the master bedroom. I was buttering his lordship's scones below stairs at some. But I was planting my petunias in the potting shed. Constable, arrest Lady Smythe. Oh, but, but how did you know? Madam, as any horticulturist will tell you, one does not plant petunias until May is out. Take her away. It's just a matter of observation. The real question is how observant were you uh, uh. Clearly, somebody in this room murdered Lord Smythe, who, at precisely 3.34 this afternoon, was brutally bludgeoned to death with a blunt instrument. I want each of you to tell me your whereabouts, at precisely the time that this dastardly deed took place. I was polishing the brass in the master bedroom. I was muttering his Lordship's scones below stairs at when I was planting my petunias in the potting chair. Constable, arrest Lady Smythe. It's easy to miss something you're not looking for. So I think that for those of us who grew up in the church, who have spent a lot of time reading the Bible, uh, learning from the scriptures, there's this temptation to look at scripture from face value and immediately jump to interpretation. What does the text mean? Um, but as you can see, when we're just looking right at what's directly in front of us without slowing down and making observations, there are so many details that we can miss. Okay, So that's why this first step is so important, to look at it, to diagram the text, to really, really deeply scrutinize what it's saying before we jump to its meaning. All right, so the second step, you see, we've got a a river. And we want to measure the width of the river that needs to be crossed. What is the difference between the original audience and us today? So as we mentioned before, the Christian today is separated from the biblical audience by differences in culture, language, situation, time, perhaps even our own place in redemptive history if we're looking at a text in the Old Testament. And these differences form a river that hinders us from moving straight from the meaning in their context to the meaning in ours. So this distance between us and them may vary from passage to passage. Sometimes it's extremely wide and requires a long, substantial bridge for crossing. But at other times, it's a narrow creek and we can easily hop over it. So it's obviously important to know just how wide the river is before we start trying to construct a bridge across it. So in this step, we're looking for significant differences between our contemporary context, our town, and theirs. All right, and that takes us to step number three. We're going to cross the principalizing bridge from their town to ours. So the question that we're asking here is what was the theological principle in this text? Right, that transcends culture, time, that, that river between us. And this is perhaps the most challenging step in the entire process. And we're looking for the theological principle or principles that are reflected in the meaning of the text that we identified in that first step. We've got to remember that this theological principle is part of the meaning. Your task is not to create the meaning. Right? We're, not, we're not reading a meaning into the text, but we're pulling meaning out of it. Your task right, is to discover the meaning that was intended by the biblical author. So as God gives specific expressions to specific biblical audiences, he's also giving universal theological teachings for all his people through the same texts. So to determine the theological principle, first recall the differences that we identified in step number two. Next, we're going to try to identify any similarities between the situation of the biblical audience and our situation. And after reviewing the differences and identifying the similarities, we then return to the meaning for the biblical audience that we described in the first step. And we try to identify a broader theological principle that's reflected in the text But also one that relates to the similarities between us and the biblical audience. So, in essence, the theological principle is the same as the theological message or the main theological point of the passage. Okay? If it's not the main point of the text, it's not the main meaning that we should draw from it. So, we're going to use this theological principle as the bridge by which we can cross over the river of differences we can summarize the criteria for formulating the theological principle with the following five steps. First, the principle should be reflected in the text. If it's not in the text, then it's not the principle that God wants us to take from it. Second, the principle should be timeless and not tied to a specific situation. Okay, so if we're looking, for instance, in the book of Deuteronomy, and we're reading through all of these very specific laws and regulations for what it meant to live in the land of Israel, okay, there has to be a principle beyond keeping this law in the land of Israel, right? So that's what we're looking for, something that's not tied to that specific situation. And then third, the principle should not be culturally bound. Fourth... The principle should correspond to the teaching of the rest of Scripture, and we'll talk about that a little bit more in the next step. Okay, but if we walk away from Scripture, um, for instance, as the Jehovah's Witnesses do when they look at uh, uh, Colossians, right? Colossians says that Jesus was the firstborn from creation, and they deduce from that specific text that Jesus is a created being. But they're ignoring the whole rest of the counsel of Scripture. It shows us that Christ was before, right Everything was created. And then lastly, the principle should be relevant to both the biblical and the contemporary audience, right So it was relevant to them then it's relevant to us. now it's the meaning of this text. All right, so step number four, consulting the biblical map. We've got this little kind of road sign. That shows up here. The question that we ask is, how does our theological principle fit with the rest of the Bible? So during this step, we have to enter the parts, whole spiral. Right? We're taking, taking the details, we're taking the big picture, and, and we're, we're working our way through that. So we're going to reflect back and forth between the text and the teachings of the rest of Scripture. We need to ask ourselves, is the principle that we developed in step number three consistent with the teachings of the rest of Scripture, with the whole counsel of God? Do other portions of Scripture add insight or qualifications to the principle? If your principle is valid, then it ought to fit or correlate with the rest of the Bible. If your text is a passage from the Old Testament, how might the New Testament shed additional light on the meaning? If our New Testament text is quoting or referencing a passage from the Old Testament, then it's important for us to understand what that Old Testament text meant first, to shed light on how it's being used now in the New Testament, to strengthen the point of the New Testament author. So now, uh, Duval and Hayes don't add this, but as, as an Anglican, I feel like I need to add this. Not only are we asking, is this consistent with the rest of Scripture, we need to ask, What has the church understood this text to mean throughout the ages, right? We want to make good use of the creeds, the ecumenical councils, the confessions, in our case, the 39 articles of religion, uh, the catechisms of the church, Heidelberg Catechism, Knowles Catechism, uh, the ACNAs to be a Christian. Uh, We might want to look at historical sermons of the church, church fathers, and let's not forget about the book of homilies, right, that we have in the Anglican church. All of these are helpful guardrails to ensure that we don't go too far afield with our interpretations of Scripture. Okay? So these these things, right, this tradition, history, it's not the same authority as Scripture, but it's the guardrails that keep us on the right track. All right. So then lastly, our final step, we need to grasp the text in our town. And the question that we're asking is, how should individual Christians today live out the theological principle that we found in this passage of Scripture? So in this step, we apply the theological principle that we've honed in steps three and four to the specific situation of individual Christians in the church today. We can't leave the meaning of the text stranded in this abstract theological principle. Sometimes that's a temptation. We've got to get to application So we have to grapple with how we should respond to that principle in our town, in our time, in our context. How does it apply in a real-life situation today? All right, so that takes us to Jude. So it's a very, very short epistle, as Nick mentioned earlier, uh, during worship. And what I want to do before we dive any further is just to read Jude. And I'm going to encourage you each week... As we leave Sunday school and as we prepare for another Sunday, I would challenge you to keep coming back and reading it. Um, Make those observations. Look for the details. Diagram the text. Is there repetition? Are there things that seem confusing to you? Um, Because that's going to help us to see a clearer picture of what Jude actually wants to communicate to us. All right. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, Relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. But these people blaspheme all that they do not understand, and they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively woe to them for they walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error and perished in Korah's rebellion these are hidden reefs at your love feasts as they feast with you without fear shepherds feeding themselves waterless clouds swept along by winds fruitless trees in late autumn twice dead Uprooted, wild waves of the sea casting up the foam of their own shame, wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way. And of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him, these are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires, their mouthed boasters, showing favoritism to gain advantage. But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, In the last time, there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people devoid of the Spirit. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. And have mercy on those who doubt, Save others, snatching them out of the fire. To others, show mercy with fear, hating even the garments stained by the flesh. Now, to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time. And now... Forever. Amen. All right, so some questions that we want to ask today. Uh, we're going to try and, and start the process of understanding the text in their town. So, five questions that I'm, I'm hoping to answer uh, before we conclude today. First, who is the author of this letter? Second, who was Jude's intended audience? who were supposed to receive this message originally. Third, what is the genre of Jude? Fourth, when was Jude written? Uh, The date. And then lastly, what was Jude's purpose for writing? All right, so authorship. Uh, The author of the epistle provides three hints to us as to his identity in the introductory salutation in verse 1. He writes, Jude servant of Jesus Christ and a brother of James. So, if you're catching that, three things. First, his name is Jude. Second, he calls himself a servant of Jesus Christ. And third, he identifies himself as the brother of James. Now, my wife told me I needed more pictures in my presentation, so you can thank her for that. Trying to keep it a little more lively. So, Jude, right? This is a Hebrew name, actually. Uh, It comes from Yehuda right, Uh, or Judah, as we know, um, uh, one of the brothers of Joseph. So in Greek, uh, this is uh, transliterated as Eudas, right, a very common Jewish name in Palestine in the first century AD. So a good starting point for us in identifying the author is to consider characters in the New Testament already named Jude to see if any of these fit the bill. Uh, So the first one that may come to mind is Judas Iscariot, but this can be ruled out immediately because we know that Judas hung himself shortly after betraying Jesus. Uh, He was an apostate, definitely not the author of this letter. Now, one could possibly be Judas Barsabbas, who was a character introduced in Luke's Acts of the Apostles. So I want to read to you a little bit about this particular Judas then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They sent Judas called Barsabbas and Silas, leading men among the brothers with the following letter. The brothers, both the apostles and the elders, to the brothers who are of the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia, Greetings. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements, that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood, from what has been strangled, from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. Farewell. So when they were sent off, they went down to Antioch, and having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter. And when they had read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. And Judas and Silas, who were themselves prophets, encouraged and strengthened the brothers with many words, right? So we've got Judas Barsabbas, um, who took the letter from the Jerusalem council to the, uh, churches. Another possibility here would be Judas of James, right? So, uh, for any Greek scholars out there, that's Judas Jacobu, um, That's Jude, right, which is a nominative masculine noun, and then James, a genitive masculine noun. Now, the genitive case in Greek can carry a really wide range of meanings. So generally, when it's used in Koine Greek, which is the form of Greek used in the New Testament, it means son of, right? So Judas of James, implicitly son of. But in some rare cases, it can mean brother of. But generally, when that's the case, additional context is given, and that does not happen in the Gospels or in Acts with this particular character. It's possible that following the death of Joseph, James, the eldest son, right, uh, Joseph, husband of Mary, uh, James, his oldest son, became the patriarch of the family. This is something that we see elsewhere in the Bible, such as in the case of Moses, father-in-law, right, who's named in Exodus 2 as Ruel, and then they call his father-in-law Jethro in Exodus 3. And then they call his father-in-law Hobab in Numbers 10. Right? So successively, as, um, as the, the elder patriarch of the family died, a, a new person was given the title of father. <laughs> but just because it's possible doesn't mean that this is probable. And most modern scholars tend to conflate this character, Judas of James, with Thaddeus, the disciple, as the same person. So their interpretation is that this is indeed Jude, the son of a man named James, not to be confused with James, the bishop of Jerusalem and brother of Jesus. So a final possibility, then, would be Judas, Jesus' brother. And there are several places in the New Testament where Jesus' brothers are referenced. Uh, So we've got an example here from the the Gospel of St. Matthew. He went away from there and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue. And many who heard him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary and brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? So Judas and James, uh, we can say with certainty, are definitely the sons of Joseph, the husband of Mary. Now, historically, some desiring to maintain the doctrine of the perpetual virginity of Mary have suggested that these were actually Jesus's cousins. But that is completely indefensible um, in the Greek So while Adelphos, which is what's translated as brother, may carry a wide semantic range, it simply cannot be justified in this context to mean cousin. So these could theoretically be the sons of Joseph from a previous marriage. That's the position of the uh, Eastern Orthodox churches. But one would have expected a mention of Joseph's other older children in the gospel accounts of the Nativity and their flight to Egypt. And they're conspicuously absent. So we have no reason to believe that Joseph was polygamous or that he had any other children outside of wedlock. So they're definitely the sons of Joseph. Um, Possibly they may also be the sons of Mary, the mother of Jesus. Though many in church history have argued against this possibility because, (coughs) again, they're upholding this doctrine of the perpetual virginity of Mary. Matthew and Luke are both intentional to explicitly include the account of Mary's virginity at the time she conceived Jesus through the power of the Holy Spirit. That's in fulfillment of Isaiah chapter 7. There's no passage of scripture elsewhere, anywhere, that speaks of Mary's virginity. And this is only really important as the context before the birth of Jesus, right, to show the fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy Matthew 1, and 25 tell us that following an angelic vision, Joseph took his wife. In other words, he married her, but knew her not. That is, he didn't consummate the marriage until she had given birth to a son. So if we use the testimony of Scripture as our only guide on this, it's possible that James, Joseph, Jude, and Simon were all the younger sons of Mary and brothers of Jesus. So that's Jude. The next thing that we're looking for is servant of Jesus Christ. So that's Jesu Christo Dulos. So the word that's translated as servant here is really better translated as slave or bond servant. It's someone who is owned by the master that they serve. So calling oneself a servant of Jesus Christ is actually very, very common in the New Testament, especially in the greetings and letters Um, Paul uses this quite a bit. Uh, In Romans, Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you. Paul, a servant of God and apostle of Jesus Christ. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Simeon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ. Right, so doulos is used here not as an indication of humility, on behalf of those who are using it, but rather points to the authority of the one that they serve, right? If I tell you I'm a servant of Jesus Christ, the message that I present to you from Jesus Christ comes with the authority of Christ himself. So as messengers of Jesus, the message they convey should be received with the authority that's due to Jesus. And then lastly, this identification of brother of James, adelphos de Jacobu. While some have claimed um, that this is an honorific title. Um, while it may be common to call a close friend or colleague brother, there's no example of anyone calling himself brother of in Greek unless he was legitimately related. Okay, so this means that he is a biological brother of somebody named James. And we have no witness in Scripture or outside of Scripture to indicate that Judas Barsabbas, right? That was the second Judas we identified. That he had any brothers, much less one who was named Judas or named James. Uh, this may strengthen or weaken the case for uh, the case of Judas of James, depending on how you interpret the genitive there. However, there was only really one James in the early church who was well enough known to be referred to simply as James in an address to the churches, um, which is what we see here at the beginning of Jude. And that James is explicitly known to have a brother named Jude. This person was not a member of the Twelve, James son of Alphaeus, James son of Zebedee, but rather James, the brother of Jesus, the bishop of the church in Jerusalem. And this understanding is actually confirmed historically Um, First, we have Clement of Alexandria, um, sometime in the late second, early third century. Uh, He confirms in his commentary on Jude that it was absolutely James um, of Jerusalem, his brother Jude. Um, And then a century later, we have further confirmation from Eusebius of Caesarea um, in his ecclesial history. So historically... Jude is understood to have been written by Jude, the brother of our Savior. So what do we know about this character, Jude, the brother of Jesus? According to John's gospel, Jude and Jesus' other brothers did not believe in Jesus as the Messiah during his earthly preaching ministry. Uh, John chapter 7, we're told, The Jews' feast of booths was at hand, so his brothers said to him, Leave here. Go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works that you're doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his own brothers believed in him. It seems that following the resurrection, James, Joseph, Jude, and Simon all had come to believe. Uh, We have a testimony to this in the first chapter of Acts. All these, with one accord, were devoting themselves to prayer in Jerusalem, together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. So some point between the crucifixion and Pentecost, we understand that Jude was converted. We've got a little map here, maybe a, a bit hard to see, but um, up midway up this map, you can see Galilee um, at the the far southern extreme of Galilee, we have Nazareth, Jesus' hometown. Um, Then below that, we have Samaria, and below that, Judea. Uh, So just under Judea, we have Ramah, and below that, Jerusalem. Okay, so we know Jesus was crucified in Jerusalem, resurrected, Pentecost happens in Jerusalem, and then shortly thereafter, the church begins to experience extreme persecution in Jerusalem, Right, which is actually the work of the Holy Spirit. As yes, we remember, Jesus told his disciples at his ascension, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. So that persecution that happened shortly after Pentecost forced the church right, further north out yeah, into Judea, into Samaria, Galilee, and then beyond, so uh, we have a, um, a testimony from Julius Africanus, uh, who's quoted in Eusebius' ecclesial history. Uh, and he's writing about Jude. From the Jewish villages of Nazareth, right, that's there in Galilee, and Kokba. they, the relatives of Jesus, traveled around the rest of the land of Israel and interpreted the genealogy that they had. And from the book of days... As far as they went on their travels, so we have uh, some some testament here that uh, that James, being in Jerusalem, his younger brothers, Joseph, Jude, and Simeon actually went around the rest of Galilee explaining their genealogy, explaining the line of David leading down to Jesus as an explanation to the peoples in the various villages of Galilee that Jesus was indeed the promised Messiah of God. Um, We can also glean from the Apostle Paul that Jude was an itinerant Jewish missionary who was married and who traveled with his wife. So in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, Paul, writing to the church in Corinth, defending himself, he says, This is my defense to those who would examine me. Do we not have the right to eat and to drink? Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife, as do the other apostles and the brothers of the Lord at Cephas? Ben Witherington, commenting on this, uh, says that uh, this passage in 1 Corinthians, written in the early 50s AD, shows that Paul takes it for granted that his audience already knows that Jude... And others of Jesus' brothers are both married and are working as traveling evangelists. Uh, Eusebius confirms that Jude must have been married as he reports that the descendants of the brother of Jesus were actually taken to Rome and presented to the emperor Domitian. He writes, Of the family of the Lord there were still living, around 81 to 96 AD, the grandchildren of Jude, who is said to have been the Lord's brother according to the flesh. Information was given that they belonged to the family of David, and they were brought to the emperor Domitian by the Evacatus, that's an equestrian soldier, for Domitian feared the coming of Christ, as Herod also had feared it. Now, with the advent of high criticism in the late 19th century and early 20th century, many scholars began arguing against the authenticity of Jude's epistle, insisting that it must be pseudepigraphal. In other words, that somebody else wrote it claiming to be Jude falsely. Um, They did this on account that they, they say, no first century Galilean builder could have possibly written this. The Greek's too good. However, more recent scholarship have returned to the position held throughout the first 1800 years or so of church history, namely that Jude, the brother of Jesus, indeed was the author um, Daryl Charles writes um, in his commentary on Jude, If Josephus the historian, Theodorus the rhetorician, Meleager the poet, and Philodemus the philosopher hailed from Galilee, perhaps it is indeed time to dispel the myth of Galilean illiteracy. Martin Hengel in his Judaism and Hellenism writes, There was no stopping the penetration of the Greek language, even in Jewish Palestine. And the young Jew who wanted to rise a stage above the mass of the simple people simply had to learn it. And again, Ben Witherington, you're going to find that I'm I'm very reliant upon uh, Ben. He's a uh, faculty member at Asbury Seminary here in Kentucky, and his commentary on Jude is actually very recent and phenomenal. Um, so if you're interested, I would highly recommend this. Uh, this actually contains his commentary on Hebrews, James, and Jude, and it is just Excellent. Uh, So Ben Witherington writes, if Jude was a craftsman left to run the family business in Nazareth, right, because James is working in Jerusalem as the bishop, he may well have needed the skills of a salesman in a city that had major construction during the reign of Herod. To this end, he needed both Greek and rhetoric, the art of persuasion. Right, so we've learned about James, or about Jude, the author. So the next question we want to ask is who was his intended audience? Well, Jude actually provided three hints as to the identity right, of the audience in his salutation. Right? He writes, Tois en Theopatri egapenmos cae Jesu Christo de teremonos cletos. Right, which is to those who are called, beloved in God, the Father, kept for jesus christ jude's explicit address does little to help us identify his intended audience as anything more specific than simply christians Um, but then he gives us another hint in verses 17 and 18 okay he tells them but you must remember beloved the predictions of the apostles of our lord jesus christ they said to you So apparently Jude's audience um, received direct communication from the apostles. It was commonly accepted that the Christian communities to whom Jude ministered had been primarily planted by the apostles themselves. So we can further deduce that these are believers who were alive roughly between, say, 35 and 68 AD, right, to have been able to hear directly from the apostles, so, again, it doesn't narrow down the field too much, and it makes us really heavily dependent on information from the genre, the date of the letter, and the purpose of his text to begin further narrowing down the possibilities of his intended audience. So, it's generally accepted that the intended audience, however, were Jewish Christians. So we want to begin asking, where could those Jewish Christians be living? So one possibility is in Syria. But this is quickly dismissed due to the fact that Jude's canonicity was not accepted in Syria until a rather late date. In fact, just before the, uh, the official canon of Scripture was accepted by the church. Um, second possibility is in Asia Minor, though that's also unlikely um, because we don't believe that Jews in Asia Minor were terribly familiar with First Enoch or with the Assumption of Moses, which are two um, resources that Jude is referencing in his letter. Third possibility would be in Egypt, um, which some people think is, is a strong case because um, Jude was added to the canon in the churches in Egypt earliest. Um, But there are no hints in this letter of early Alexandrian thought. James also tended to be less revered in Egypt. So saying I'm a brother of James really wouldn't carry much weight if that were his intended audience. So that leaves us with this fourth possibility, which I think is his strongest, that his audience were Jewish Christians in Galilee and the eastern Mediterranean from that map that we looked at a little while ago, where Jude had likely done most of his ministry. Um, his audience would know his source material. Um, Enoch, the Assumption of Moses, were very popular in that part of the world. Um, and still, in Galilee, they would have been surrounded by Gentiles and Hellenistic culture, which seems to be some of the context into which Jude is writing. So next question uh, is regarding the genre and literary context. So uh, Jude's genre is really clearly a Jewish apocalyptic style, which was popular in the first century prior to 70 AD among Palestinian Jews. Um, So he's steeped in both Greek speech rhetoric and Jewish pesher and midrash exegetical methods. And this is a specific speech act that's captured in writing and intended to be read aloud to an auditory rather than a literary audience. So why is this important? Um, when I was taking homiletics in seminary, we were talking a lot about context. Um, so a hundred years ago, preaching was, was taught uh, as something that you do from a manuscript. You write down your sermon and you read it aloud aloud. To your audience, and that's because 100 years ago, um, here in the states especially, the average pew sitter read quite a bit. It was a literary context. With the advent of radio, right, American culture started to move from being uh, a literary context to an auditory context, and then with television as a visual context. So, in a lot of preaching classes these days, you find. Encouragement to show videos, for instance. Just things to help capture people's attention and make sure that they're tracking with you. Or perhaps a a slideshow, because there's a recognition that the average pew sitter tends to not be as much of a literary listener, right, as they are somebody who watches television. And the way that I communicate when I write a letter is very different than the way that I communicate conversationally, which is what tends to happen um, on television, so Jude's audience were people who were very auditory, right? They weren't necessarily literary. So what he wrote is intended to be a speech that's captured in writing. All right. <clears throat> so uh, Witherington again here. Jude offers us a sermon in rhetorical form that has only an epistolary opening to indicate that it came to the audience in a written form. It was likely delivered orally at the point of destination. In other words, he gave the letter to somebody, they took it to the churches, and they read it out loud during worship. We must think constantly in terms of the oral majority of the culture and how literate persons like Jude were trying to speak into their situations. right. And then lastly, Jude assumes an instant familiarity with both Old Testament and Jewish apocalyptic literature, especially this assumption of Moses and the book of Enoch. So the date. We have some hints. So first of all, it's written in a Jewish Christian apocalyptic style, which exists primarily at the end of the first century B.C. and up to about 70 A.D. So we've got about a hundred year window, right, where that. Style was used. Um, He assumes first-person recollection of apostolic teaching, right? So as I told you before, that's probably like 35 to 68 AD. Um, There's no early Catholic style markers in the letter that are really popular at the end of the first century, beginning of the second century, so we know it's early. Um, Jude is very clearly used as source material for 2 Peter, and we have a solid date for 2 Peter at 68 AD. So we know that Jude was written before that. Um, it's inferred from the text that James must still be living. Okay? And James died in 62 AD. So we're narrowing it down. It had to be before 68. Now it had to be before 62. There's no sense of Pauline influence. And Paul's letters began circulating in the churches around 55 AD. So we're looking a little bit earlier than that. We have the presence of antinomianism in the context to whom he is writing, right, which arose somewhere around 50 A.D. and uh, remained a big issue in the church until 90. Um, Jude speaks of the faith, and the earliest reference that we have to the faith in Christian writing is around 50 A.D., So my conclusion here is we're talking about approximately between 48 and 60, maybe 58 AD. So about a 10 to 12 year window when this could have been written. Very early, right? So this is earlier than we have uh, textual copies of the Gospels circulating around in the churches. What was Jude's purpose? Well, he tells us, Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation... Found it necessary to write, appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation. Ungodly people pervert the grace of God into sensuality and deny our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. So Jude indicates his longstanding intention to communicate with his audience, which has been made even more urgent by this crisis that has arisen in the churches in Galilee. His intention uh, is to uh, exposit the finer details of the gospel, but that's had to be set aside to deal with this crisis. So he tells them to contend for the faith. This evokes imagery of athletic contests in the Greek games. Which is an interesting choice because Jude's opponents have so uh, clearly embraced all that is wrong about Greek culture and ethics. This is the first of many such examples that Jude uses where he takes a Greek idea and turns it on its head. So uh, also from Jude, it's really clear that the role of tradition as an anchor for orthodoxy um, from the very first generation of Christians. So as I mentioned before, this letter is written before we have paper copies of Gospels floating around circulating in the churches. So one needs to ask what was the faith that he's asking them to contend for. Um, so Richard Bauckham writes about this in his commentary. He says, Jude's idea of the tradition of the gospel conforms exactly to the same thing as Paul. Uh, so Paul uses uh, paradidonai uh, to deliver and paralambanai to receive with reference to his initial instruction of the churches he found. He delivered the traditions to the churches, right? So oral tradition, this is what the life of Jesus was, the deeds of Jesus, his death, his resurrection. So he delivered the traditions to the churches and they received them from him. The central context of these traditions was the gospel itself. But they also included traditions about the life of Jesus and instruction on Christian conduct and practice. So things like abstaining from blood, Abstaining from eating animals that were sacrificed to idols, right? What do we do about circumcision? Those kinds of things are the tradition. So probably these various elements should not be distinguished too sharply. Particularly noteworthy are Paul's injunctions that his readers should hold fast or maintain these traditions. And his appeal to them as a standard by which the teaching and practice may be judged. Again, that was Richard Baucom in his commentary on Jude. The faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. So Jude is making clear that the apostolic revelation of the gospel is complete and unchanging. Right. So just wrapping up our session here today, I would be remiss if I didn't talk about this. What were Jude's source materials? I've already referenced this. We have the apostolic oral tradition, right? So the apostles left Jerusalem, they went out into Judea, Samaria, the ends of the earth. Here, particularly, planting churches in Galilee, orally passing along the traditions of the gospel, the life and ministry of Jesus, right? And so Jude is using that as source material. Second, he's using the Old Testament. We have several Old Testament references that exist in Jude. So Sodom and Gomorrah is an example, right? Balaam's error, Korah's rebellion, right? All referenced. But then we have the book of Enoch, right? Which is not present in our canon of scripture. So the book of Enoch, also known as First Enoch, is an ancient Hebrew apocalyptic religious text ascribed by tradition to Enoch, the great-grandfather of Noah. It was likely composed between the 4th and 2nd centuries B.C. It contains unique material about the angelic rebellion, more context behind the flood narrative that we find in Genesis, and a prophetic exposition of the thousand-year reign of the Messiah, This is not part of either the Jewish or the Christian canon of Scripture except in the case of the Ethiopian Orthodox Church. They've included Enoch in their Bible um, and also the Ethiopian Beta Israel community. So if you're not familiar, in Ethiopia, there is a tribe of um, Ethiopians who claim to be um, descendants of a tribe of Israel. Um, And so they actually include uh, Enoch in their canon of Scripture as well. So, this was very popular among Second Temple uh, Jews, Palestinian Jews in particular. So, um, this is something that we have. You can find it online. You can get a hard copy of it. Really, very interesting to read. Um, I am solidly convinced that Judas explicitly quoting it uh, or referencing it a few times in his letter. So in addition to the book of Enoch, we also have, it seems, a reference to this assumption of Moses. Y'all remember that, that little verse where it talks about the uh, archangel Michael and his contending against the devil for the body of Moses? Well, that does not exist in our Old Testament. It's just not there. So the question is, where did it come from? Um, and actually, uh, Origen, in his third century uh, De Principis, specifically cites that this comes from this book, The Assumption of Moses. It's another Jewish apocryphal work purported to be a testament of the death of Moses. We don't have any extant copies or manuscripts of this. We have fragments. There's one fragment, but the story of Michael and the devil having a fight over Moses' body is not in that fragment. So... We just have to put together what we can from Jude himself and then from Origen in his commentary. So what do we do with the fact that Jude seems to be relying so heavily on these extra-canonical sources? Um, Does that mean that the book of Enoch or the Assumption of Moses are lost canonical books? should Should we add Enoch back in? So... I really believe that uh, we can rely heavily on our confession here the Articles of Religion. Article 6 says, Holy Scripture containeth all things necessary to salvation, so that whatever is not read therein, nor may be proved thereby, is not to be required of any man, that it should be believed as an article of the faith, or be thought requisite or necessary to salvation. In the name of Holy Scriptures, we do understand these canonical books of the Old and New Testament, of whose authority was never in any doubt in the church. And then the article lists out the books in our canon of scripture. But it continues that there are other books, as Jerome says. The church doth read for example of life and instruction of manners, but yet doth it not apply them to establish any doctrine. Okay? So uh, my argument here is, I do believe that Jude is referencing the book of Enoch, that he is referencing the assumption of Moses. These are not scripture. And I don't think that Jude is actually citing them as scripture himself. I think he's using them as very familiar sermon illustrations. Right. Last time I preached, I gave an illustration about going to my 20 year high school reunion. Doesn't mean it's scripture. It's just helpful to understand the point that I was trying to make in that sermon. All right. So any questions for me? We are at time here. If you've got kids in the nursery, feel free to go pick them up. Um, But I can hang around if there are any questions about this. Next week, we're going to pick up, starting to uh, understand a little bit more about the first few verses in Jude. Awesome. Any other questions? All right, well, thank you all. I'll see you next week.